like a word. About being kidnapped. A curious thing for a book choice. Kidnap stories, kidnap stories. You're listening to Weed Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. We're talking about kidnapping because we've got two books about kidnapping. Yeah. But they're unusual. They're a slight twist on the oh, kidnapping story, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, both of them. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, kidnapping stories are kind of second to murder stories when kidnapping it comes to the thriller are, books. Are so old. They are. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is not my child. The the fairies have swapped him or her. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for yeah, one yeah. Of their own. There's a lot of fairy stories involved in that's kidnapped children, and so that's folk tales and dark, yeah, deep things. Well, let's face it, it's, it's one of the big fears, isn't it, that your child's going to be taken away? We're going to be featuring two authors, Matt Wesolowski and Adrian McKinty. Should we start with a bit of Matt? We've got Matt reading a bit of his book. Right. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it. So it's, it's called Changeling, and it says, you know, a, a missing child, a family in denial, six witnesses, six stories, which one is true? And um, I'll let Matt introduce it mm. and then we'll we'll pick up after that hi i'm matt veselowski and i'm going to be reading um a bit from my third novel changeling when a seven-year-old boy goes missing and isn't seen again for 30 years who is it that we are to blame is it his father for driving him across a uh, dark woodland in the middle of the night on christmas eve is it his mother for choosing immersion in alcohol over raising her son Is it the family friends who never spoke up? The teachers who saw the red flags but did nothing? Or is it the forest itself where Alfie Marsden disappeared, fraught with mystery and paranormal? In Changeling, there are six stories, and there is one truth. So now we know where you are. Can you tell me again what's happened? You said your son is missing, correct? I was out of the car for a minute, five minutes. The engine. It was coming from the engine. How old's your son, sir? Seven. He's got blonde hair, sandy, short. He's little. Three, four foot tall. He's called Alfie. Oh, God, you're doing really well. So he's called Alfie. We're going to help you find him, okay? He's wearing a red knitted jumper with... with a lion on it. Can you tell me your name, sir? Sorrel. Sorrel Marsden. What you've just heard is from the 999 call from the night of the 24th of December, 1988. The night that seven-year-old Alfie Marsden disappeared, never to be seen again. Some say that Alfie's disappearance was one controversy too many for Wencher Forest and led to the majority of the site being closed to the public. But this only meant the ghoulish draw of the forest intensified, as did the speculation in the press. Descriptions of the various alleged occurrences between the tangled branches of one of England's most ancient woods have become distorted and bloated. With story upon story, claim upon claim, Wencher Forest had become a place synonymous with horror. Oh, now that was more like a dramatic performance, wasn't it? And now, now the structure of the book's unusual, isn't it? In so, the fact that yeah. it's almost done as if it's reportage, isn't it? It's uh, it's almost like it should be an audio book. Or a, or a play, so that that was part of a 999 emergency call that the, the father makes when the son goes missing. And the book is 
it's done as if it's a pod, it's the, it's the written version of a podcast. Right. So you've got Scott King, who's the investigator. He's an online journalist, and uh, he ha- he has six stories. They're called uh, like where we'd we'd like a word. He's six stories, and each one, you know, he investigates you know a disappearance or something like that, and he interviews six witnesses, and each of the witnesses is an episode. And there are other bits like letters that he talks about or the audio logs of the 999 call, that sort of thing. And he also talks about, oh, I was feeling a bit nervous when I was going to interview this people. What would it be like? And would I dare ask this? So do you remember that uh, serial, the American podcast? I do, yeah, very well, yeah. That was then broadcast on Radio 4 in the UK. Phenomenal. So it's kind of in that style, but as a book. And I initially found it a bit obtrusive and annoying and contrived. However, then after a while I got it and it was clever and it was, it's a really clever way, well, he does it really cleverly, of way of bringing, giving you information in ways that that and tricking you and leading you different ways without you realising it. And it has some really good twists in it. It switches voice, doesn't it? It switches it, between third-party reporting and, and first-person reporting as well, doesn't it, as you go through? Yeah, and it lets him... Yeah, there's... And you really are... You think you know what's happened and and you don't work it out. And there's a lot of kind of supernatural stuff. I mean, they talk about this the forest where the boy goes missing, strange sightings, tales of the hidden folk who dwell there. One of the lots of people he talks to are people who are working for a company doing a building development there and... Weird things happened and machines did strange things. And, you know, a psychic who claims to know what has happened to the boy. And and you're thinking, is this horror? Is this supernatural fantasy? What's going on here? And neither of those things would particularly appeal to me. But it's worth, really worth trying this and, and, Mm. and sticking with it because it's not it's not what you think. And this the whole kidnap thing. We'll hear from Adrian McKinty, but he was saying, you know, if once you become a parent, it's not a case of death or murder is the worst thing. It's something happened to your child. Yeah, yeah. And, and yet the reality of it, of course, is, is actually quite remote. I mean, I know this from uh, my days as a policeman. You were constantly trying to reassure parents, it's really OK to let your kids play out in the street. You know, think back when you were a kid. How many kids were abducted? How many kids did you hear were abducted? How many of you thought you had bad parents letting you go out and play? It's been so ramped up by the media. Um, there's a guy I know called Warwick Cairns who wrote a book a few years ago called uh, How to Live Dangerously, where he looked at the realistic odds of things happening to you. You know, things like um, if, if you're worried about dying in an air crash, you'd have to fly every day for the next 26,000 years to die in a crash. You'd, you're much more likely to die in a car on your way to the airport. Uh, but when he looked at the subject of child abduction, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. If he, he looked at, I think it was children under 10 years old, as per the population and and as per the number of people who children who are actually abducted and he worked out that you'd have to lock your child out of the house every day for 200,000 years for them to be abducted and and well, even, I didn't do it that often and even <laughs> and even then you'd probably get them back safe in 24 hours because most abductions are by estranged parents or a relative um you know the fact that we still keep going on about Madeleine McCann is because it's one of the few that happened and it didn't even happen in the UK but it's such a primal fear, that thought that it could be your child. And I remember there was a case, taken, I don't want to yeah. name the people, but people were all searching for it. Turns out she was hidden under the bed I remember it well, yeah. by, by yeah, the mum. Yeah. And I, I guess those children did used to die young. Oh, Infant God, mortality yeah. was much higher. 
So do you think they're vulnerable? And and in days gone by, they were vulnerable mm. to to all sorts of exploitation and, and and just dying. Well, I mentioned in the last podcast. You know, I just read the um, Halle Rubenhold book about the victims of Jack the Ripper, and the second victim. I mean, she had I think it was six children in total, and four of them died, and it was just accepted almost as a fact of life. I mean, each one must have hurt them horribly. Of course, any parent's going to be. Um, you know, absolutely destroyed by their child dying, but it was such a fact of life, particularly among the poor, you know, just 150 years ago, that you quite often had a dead sibling sleeping in a bed with the other children while they waited for the mortician to come and sort it out. You know, it was it was that common. So what? presumably you ran rampant around Cornwall when you were a child. <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. We went out and played, and, and of course the more kids there are on the streets, the safer they are anyway, because, you know, the safety in numbers. But we have got to a stage where we've got ourselves so scared about everything that, that children don't seem to be allowed to play out. I'm pleased to say in the last five years, I've seen a lot more kids playing out in the street. And I think that's that's encouraging because I think maybe... Because that's what we did all when I was young. Yeah, of course. We did all the time. Or there was the, we went into this wood and there was Jack lived there. Oh, Big yeah. Jack, who was a shotgun. And if you walked across this little wooden plank bridge and it was a bit rotten, and if your foot got stuck and Jack came, how would you escape? Absolutely. We all, we all had these stories, weren't we? We all had these stories. And we, all, mm. we were all told about stranger danger and that sort of mm. thing. But again, there was safety in numbers. You knew if there was a strange man hanging around and that sort of thing, there were, there were, there were 20 of you and one of them, you know. And um, So I remember getting, I used to be left outside. My mother, how could she do this, would leave me outside in the pram outside the front door of the terraced house. And, and then I did that in turn with my children because it just seemed, well, they get fresh air and they sleep better. I did get some strange looks as if they left the child outside the front of his house. Mm. But then, I suppose, playing football in the street with my children or cricket or whatever, occasionally some bloke would come walking past and then stop and go, well done. <laughs> it's sort of, yeah, you don't see much yeah. of that yeah. anymore. I know, I know. And right enough, that was... <sighs> there weren't that many people, I suppose, they have electronic devices and school facilities or whatever mm. so the idea of running up and down the street is like more traffic perhaps as well of course more traffic, yeah. yeah and the other thing is that i mean the, when you get smaller communities there's a stronger sense of community because uh, i mean I've, I've just been down in cornwall the last few days visiting uh, down for a family wedding and it, it's quite it's quite obvious when you're walking around a town like helston the people who live in helston they're born there you know, they get married to someone they went to school with there. You know, they have kids there. Their kids go to the same school that they went to and they die there and get buried, you know. And you'll have maybe two or three, sometimes four generations of the same family all living in the same town and everyone knows their neighbours. That creates a, a sort of safer environment, obviously, for, for kids because uh, I think it's an old African proverb about it takes a whole village to look after your children. And it, it's kind of true, you know. Well, I kind of did that. I like the idea that there were a lot of people who would be able to tell them off. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's exactly it. And, and, and I know who they were. Yeah, and, and so so things were slightly different then, you know, because when you live in a town that's more of a commuter town, there isn't quite such a sense of community and you sometimes don't even know your next-door neighbours. So, you know, that makes a difference. But, yeah, but it, but it is such a primal fear, the idea that your child could get taken and, you know, even worse, be harmed in some way or even killed, that that's always going to be a gripping plot device. And what's interesting is, is the different ways that people can manipulate that to tell a story. Because this is very different to many other kidnap books I've read. Hmm. It's it's eerie. Well, let's hear a bit about Matt Veselovsky from the man himself. 
I'm the author of three books, Six Stories, Hydra, and my latest one, Changeling, all of which are set as fictional podcasts. Each book is a different cold case, and each case is presented by investigative journalist Scott King. Well, this is for a podcast, so that's very appropriate. Tell us how the podcast format in the book works uh, with the plot, with the story, because it's, it's very important. I, I was never really a crime reader that much, nor a crime writer. I was, I've always been into horror, my background's in horror, but I listened to the first series of Serial, and I really enjoyed the new um, rhythm and the new format, and I thought, I wonder if this would work in book form. So what I did is I listened to it again and again, made sort of notes of how it worked, where the narration was, where the interviews were, and just wrote to see if uh, this would fit as almost a side project between writing horror books as an experiment. Um, <clears throat> and then shelved it because I never thought it would go anywhere. Um, and then I pitched it to uh, a panel at Bloody Scotland Crime Festival in 2015 and got given the business card of Karen Sullivan from Miranda Books. Um, and again, I thought she was just taking pity on me, <laughs> really. Um, but yeah, and then it seems to have worked. So I'm really happy about that. So the, the next two books are in the same format because it seems so far to be working. And it's quite unusual as well, so it marks you right. When I started reading Changeling, I was, I suppose, finding it a bit annoying in that so much was withheld and so much was, well, I'll tell you that later and we'll come to that in another episode. And, you know, will I be talking about this? Will I not? The, the way that the serial podcast, they... I suppose as a journalist, I've thought in the past, find the story, tell the story, you know, spare us all your work in between. We don't need to know all that, which Serial does a lot. It, they agonise about the, this direction, the wrong direction. And you do that very accurately in the book. Happily, I was completely won over because <laughs> I thought, ah, ah, I, I get it now. What challenges did you find writing it that way as opposed to in a more straightforward narrative way? Well, I think, like you, um, it is annoying in a podcast, but also with the podcast format, I wanted it to sound authentic. And when you've got a series of a podcast, you have to tease so your listeners will want to listen to episode two and continue through the series. And I always like that little drip drip of, well, we will come to this later, because that makes the podcast sound authentic. And, the, and what I strive to do is to keep it sounding authentic. I mean, <laughs> I even considered making up some adverts. You know how podcasts have adverts? And I thought I'd make up some products and I thought that would be insufferable. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's all about authenticity. I want to, to write authentically. Um, and I think hinting at things makes you almost want to read more. And because it's a brand new format, again, a lot of the time it's experimental just to see how it'll go. But authenticity is at the base of everything I write. Matt Veselovsky talking about his podcast within a book within our podcast. Mm. I was just thinking about the word kidnap. It's quite interesting that it's got kid at the front. So I thought I'd do a quick etymological search and have okay. a look here. And um, uh, it doesn't really help much because it says it's a late 17th century back formation from kidnapper, from kid, <laughs> and nap as to seize. Oh, so nothing, uh, nothing to do with goats. Doesn't really help. It? Well, nothing to do with it, Captain it Kid. The word appeared in English in the 17th century referring to children, young people. However, kid, meaning goats, appeared around 1200 from the old Norse so took a long time it took a long time to get around that, but yeah. it does appear that the origin of the word kidnap in the term we use it now is kidnapping it's stealing children and that in itself is quite interesting isn't it that the phrase we use for everyone now was actually about stealing kids ah. I see we've learned something there Dave 
Also, listening to Matt there, he was saying a good podcast teases people. We've been failing to tease people. Well, it, it, it depends on the kind of podcast, doesn't it? I mean, there's, there's some great informative podcasts out there, but they're not they're not dramatic podcasts. I mean, something like Serial did tease, didn't it? I mean, that was that was extraordinarily well done. Yeah. Well, you see, the first uh, series of it I enjoyed, but then I didn't want to have that trick played on me a second time. No, no, the second series didn't work quite so well. It was still very good, but it wasn't quite. It didn't. It, you weren't. Oh my god! I can't wait for the next one with the second series, like you were with the first. No, it was like, oh, for goodness' sake, skip it and get on with it. And a bit like Big Brother, it was a one-trick pony, wasn't it? The first series was was absolutely compulsive viewing, but by the time we got to the second series, Big Brother, they all knew what was going on when they went in, so it was never quite the same. So they just had to keep ramping up the things they could do to make them be more outrageous. Although, as podcasts go, it has done fairly well <laughs> and been fairly popular. Absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. I do want to tease the audience because with the fact that we'll be hearing not only from Matt Veselovsky but also from Adrian McKinty. Mm, now, interestingly, I mean, it's you don't watch the news of an evening and hear of many kidnaps, do you? No. I mean, it's not a very common occurrence. Well, at least not in this country. Thank goodness. Oh, yes, yeah, Columbia. Because, I mean, you do industry. get. Yeah, absolutely, and, and certainly. I mean, you're you're a reporter. I mean, you must have had some sort of training to deal with if you were doing foreign reporting I in did. terms of kidnapping. It was called hostile environment training. So it was... Uh, <laughs> I don't know they turn anything into jargon, weren't they? Yeah, so they were... How learned, not to get kidnapped? Well, it was kind of battlefield first aid, you know, how to cross a minefield with an injured colleague, identifying hazards, concealed gunmen, that sort of thing. And I was very good. I was able to identify all the weapons <laughs> without being told identifying things by the sound of, you know, type of weapon, that sort of thing. But one of the things was kidnap training. And it was about kind of how to react if your vehicle is stopped by armed men, probably, and you're bundled out and taken away. Uh, it was partly about how not to annoy them and get shot immediately. Absolutely, yeah. Or beaten up or whatever. But And also uh, how to have the resilience to, to cope with it, not crack up. So they practiced it. So at some point during the training, on the way to do ostensibly something else entirely, our, our minibus is you know ambushed on the road, and guys who are probably ex army or special branch or SAS or whatever who are involved in this sort of training, pull us all out, cover our heads, you know, put bags or masks over our heads so we can't see we're disoriented, shove us about a bit, and then troop us off somewhere, and they're kind of threatening and questioning and being quite rough, not 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 beating us up or anything like that. And even if you know I'm on a course, this is part of the course, it's not real, it's still, they might accidentally hurt me or trip over something. So that's, that's something to watch out for. And one of the things that I learned from it was to have a kind of a fake persona because they'll use things that they can learn about you against you. So open your wallet and say, there's a picture of your partner, your husband or your wife or whoever, mm -hmm. and child. So then they'll start, they'll use that as leverage to break you down and say, oh, what I wouldn't do to, you know, your wife, say, or your child, and what, what will they think, what's going to happen to them, what's going to happen to you. And it's, that that is really going to hurt you. Mm. So, of course, what you have is a photo of people who have nothing to do with you. So a fake partner and child. So when they start threatening these imaginary people that are in your photo, it's, I mean, obviously you you look upset 
because <laughs> if you don't look upset, they'll realise. But it's not going to cut you to the core in the way that if they really were talking about your real ones. So like, you'd have to get all that prepared beforehand, before you go into the area where you could be at risk. In, indeed. So you have, it's a bit like if you're going somewhere where you might be pickpocketed, it's better not to have everything safe because people might persevere. So you have something that you're happy to lose. $10 or something in a pocket so you're uh, you're attacked and they, they rob you and they I get away with something. Who, every time they upgrade their phone, they keep that in their trouser pocket and put their old phone in a pocket that's more exactly. visible yeah. so it's the old yeah. one that gets nicked. Yeah, so you've got a dispensable, a, yeah, thro- yeah, a throwaway yeah. thing. So it's, it's a little bit like that. So you're kind of using their psychological trick against them, but they think they're in control and they think that you're breaking them down. And that helps with your resilience until you escape or rescue comes. But it is very disorientating. I think it was really interesting. I, mean, I was at the Bradford Literary Festival and I got to interview John Hudson, who wrote a very good book on... Um, he's the guy who trains the survival trainers, if you like, for the for the armed forces. So he teaches the people who then teach people like Bear Grylls how to survive. Um, and he was saying that one of the most important things... You know, if you're stranded and abandoned somewhere or if you're in a situation where you're in danger or anything like that, is never, ever get a sense that you're no longer in control of the situation. Just even if it's just little things like, you know, I know I can get shelter, I know I can get water, I know I can cover myself from the rain. Even if it's just something like that, as long as you feel you're doing something and, like and you're still in control of the situation, you'll 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 stay sane. So it's, well, at least I can do this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so there's an irreducible core of strength mm. or, or reassurance. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Oh, scary. No, we never had to do anything like that in the police. The, well, the thing... The thing yeah. <laughs> Don't get kidnapped a lot. <laughs> no. Although you might have taken a few people away. Uh, well, yeah, but lawfully, you lawfully, know, and with, yeah. with, with the appropriate amount of force if necessary. And Well, do you know, actually, but so we're talking about resilience, so that was training if you are kidnapped. Yeah. Um, which obviously is a terrible thing, wouldn't wish it on anyone, and it, and it was only a, you know, a training thing. But... How to be resilient if someone you love is kidnapped? Because Tough. you're having, you don't know what's happening. No matter how strong they're being and wherever they're being held, it's it's a mystery, it's a blank, and you've no idea what's going on. And I like the way, so Adrian McKinty, the other person we're going to be hearing about, so he's a, a writer from Northern Ireland, and he's had this massive success recently. He's, he's He's written various books over the years that I've read and really enjoyed. And he was explaining that, oh, yeah, I was getting really good reviews and people tell me I was great, but I wasn't making any money out of it. And I think he was on the verge of giving up. Mm. He was driving a taxi, an Uber in Australia. Yes, indeed, dear listener. If the name sounds familiar, we have mentioned him before on the show and heard a little clip from him. Okay, so well, maybe I've, I've told that story before. He was so he was driving a taxi and then an agent contacted him from America one night. You know, have you got anything? And he said, well, there is this short story. I've been saving. And he um, has now gone big in America. He was on Jimmy Fallon program. He's got yeah, he a won film a massive deal. Reader's Award, didn't he? And things, He's yeah, doing yeah. brilliantly for his latest book, which I will just extricate. Ah, you're talking about The Chain. The Chain. And so it says, victim, survivor, abductor, criminal, you will become each one. You are now part of The Chain. And on the back, you know, your phone rings, a stranger has kidnapped your child. Okay, so far so conventional, mm. upsetting and all that. To free them, you must abduct someone else's child. Your child will be released when your victim's parents kidnap another child. 
if any of these things don't happen, your child will be killed. So you're now part of the chain. And it's kind of ratcheting up, ratcheting up. And it's it's like a it's high It's a fantastic concept, idea and a horrifying idea. And I just imagine trying to investigate that. Because you're dealing with the victims of crime who then become the perpetrators of a different crime. Everyone's hands are dirty. Yeah, and, and it's an extraordinary idea. And imagine freeing your child and them realising that the way they were freed was that you put another child through the terrible ordeal that they'd been through. And knowing how the parents are going to feel of the child you've just abducted yourself. You could imagine wow. they'd be so delighted to see you and then horrified to learn like I've been rescued by a monster who was my parent. Well, let's hear a bit of Adrian. I was going to say, is Adrian a monster? Is Well, <laughs> is Adrian a monster? Mm. That can be this episode's question. <laughs> <laughs> Dear listener, over to you on that one. Uh, OK, we're going to hear from Adrian McKinty, and he's talking a bit about what he was doing before he wrote The Chain. He was, he was writing some other books, and what's, what's happened with this. It, it's a a little while ago it spoke to him before he just exploded and, and became huge but so here's Adrian McKinty talking about the chain after I finished the Duffy series I, I wrote six of those in a row over six years and to be honest it was hard work and heavy lifting just to go back into the troubles for one book um, you know it was pretty hard and, and to read all those materials again and and to go through the newspapers, I, you know, it was it really took it out of me. And to do that six times, six years in a row, my publishers wanted another Moore's Sean Duffy series, and I said, look, I have to stop this. I have to take a year off and do nothing, and just read and recharge my batteries, and which is exactly what I did. Um, I took a year off and and recharged my batteries, and then. Um, I came back and I thought, I don't want to do another Duffy now. I want to do a standalone. And I'd had this idea for a standalone. And I'd, I'd written that up as a short story years ago, but I hadn't published the short story because I thought it was too good. Uh, I, I rarely get good ideas, like big ideas, like uh, high concept ideas. I almost never get those. And um, I finally got one years ago and I wrote it up as a short story and I thought, no, 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 no hold on to this, Adrian, because this you can make into a, a high-concept novel. And so last year I wrote that up, and uh, it's called The Chain. Tell us a bit about it. Um, well, it's um, just terrifying. I mean, I, I don't normally like scary stories, and I, I wanted to write the scariest thing that I could possibly think of. Um, and I thought, well, when you have kids, the scariest thing that can ever happen is for something to happen to your kids. I mean, when you're, when you're an adult and you have kids, death is no longer an issue because you willingly sacrifice yourself for your kids any day of the week. So I thought, we'll have this. It's the oldest story in the world. I mean, the, one, of, one of the things I remember from primary school was the story of Demeter and Persephone. And I just loved the story of this mother, Demeter, this goddess, Demeter, and her daughter has kidnapped Persephone, and she's taken into the underworld. And Demeter goes down into hell and get it, gets her daughter back out of hell. And I remember when I was about six or seven years old, loving that story except she doesn't she kind of gets yeah she's hell. for six months of the year and persephone has to go back and and i also wanted to i i love that idea as well i thought even when you're rescued from hell 
you know, there's still a little bit of hell left. And I thought, and a lot of these stories of, 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 a, of a kidnapped kid, that's when the book ends, when the kid gets returned. And I thought, no, no, let's keep the camera rolling. You know, like the story of Persephone, let's keep the camera rolling for a second and a third act um, to see what happens after that. So my story is um, a, uh, a girl's waiting at a bus stop and she's kidnapped and this woman's driving in her car. She's actually going to this cancer clinic in Boston, famous cancer clinic, um, for a checkup. And she gets this call, and it's this frantic woman in the phone saying, I've got some terrible news for you. And the, my protagonist, Rachel, goes, what's the news? And he says, I'm really sorry, but I've kidnapped your daughter. And the woman doesn't sound like a kidnapper because she sounds terrified herself. And then she says, look, I, I, I've got your daughter, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to kill her unless you do everything I say. And she said, no, this is a joke. And then she finally believes her. And I says, this is what you have to do. You have to pay the ransom, and then you have to kidnap another child um, to replace your child on this entity called the chain. And this thing has been going for years, maybe decades, maybe hundreds of years. It's this kidnapping, evil, evil kidnapping scheme. And the only way to get off it is to get someone else on. And, um, and the woman's like horrified and she thought, well, I'm a, a good person, a moral person. How could I ever do something that despicable and that evil? And that's what the chain does to you. Uh, first of all, you, you become a victim and then you become an accomplice and then you become the criminal and then you become the monster at the end of this process. And I just thought, well, that's just horrific. When I thought of that idea, I thought that is horrific let me see how far I can go with this. And I wrote this story and I just, I made it as relentless and as gut-wrenching. But also I wanted, I, I don't like to give the reader no hope. I just wanted, you know, have faith in this woman. This woman is an order. You know, one of the things that I remember about Ransom and I remember about Big Liam's um, Taken is that they're, they've, Liam has special skills in Taken. And when Ransom, uh, Mel Gibson's a millionaire. And I thought, well, what about, somebody who has no special skills at all um, and they're not rich, they're poor and they're, um, it's just an ordinary person. It says, what would they do in these circumstances to get their child back? What would they be capable of? And um, for me, it was just a joy taking this character that I grew to just love and respect and taking her down as she goes deep into hell to get her daughter back. Uh, and, and bring her home again. And then after she gets her, this is a bit of a spoiler, but after she gets her back, we have to deal with the consequences of what happens next. You've totally spoiled The Chain by Fleetwood Mac for me now. Yeah. This no, is what's going to be in my head from now on. Well, the, um, I did have a, the book does begin with um, the famous quote from um, Stevie Nicks, um, we must never break the chain. So um, yeah. it begins with a pessimistic uh, quote from Schopenhauer, and then it begins with um, Stevie Nicks' wee line from The Chain. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So you caught me with a biscuit again now. <laughs> Actually, a bit of a change this week. We've got shortbreads this week. <laughs> well, um, the other quote, apart from Stevie Nicks, We Must Never Break the Chain, is this from Arthur Schopenhauer. There is some wisdom to be had in taking the gloomy view and looking upon the world as a kind of hell. Well, it certainly worked for him. Yeah, but that's in, Schopenhauer. In, in writing this book. I, I was struck by, he was saying... That idea, you're a good moral person and, and going wrong, but for the best of reasons, and how do you do that? Is it possible to do that without becoming monstrous? How do you fight a monster? How do you rescue your child from a monster? 
without being a monster. Yeah, well, I mean, that whole... And you can't call people. the police. No, no, of course not, no. That, that whole thing about how far will people go, you know, will they do terrible things for the sake of, you know, will they do terrible bad things for the sake of a good thing or for their own survival? And without, as he was saying, you know, Liam Neeson and Taken, without your special skills, they're like, yeah, yeah. How, do you, how do you get a gun? How do you buy a gun? How do you get money if, you know, people saying this ransom... Where do you go if you don't have some rich friend? Hey, would you lend me fifty grand? Well, some of the best psychological horrors are predicated on. That. I mean, I mean, whether you love them or loathe them, the Saw series of films, a lot of that is based on whether people are willing to almost like take a bullet for someone else in order for them all to be free, you know, and 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 you know whether people can overcome the bad things they've done in the past and do one good thing, which may disadvantage them but will actually make things better for everyone. And it's uh, it's quite scary, really, because. I think, we talked about it. I think we talked about it on this programme before, you know, that there have been a number of experiments, some more discredited than others, like things like the Stanford Prison Experiment and the stuff Zimbardo did where he was giving people electric shocks and it was going up to terrible high Yeah, there's levels. a lot of questions about those. There are, recently. yeah. I mean, a lot of it's been a little bit... And unfortunately, we can't, we can't check how right they were now because those sorts of experiments would never be allowed now. But it, it is interesting to see how far people will go in response to either saving themselves or, or making things better for themselves or just for the sake of, you know, sometimes just monetary reward or... or well, I suppose like some people will do anything more, a bit more selfish. Well, yeah, but, you can't, you can't generalise because some people suppose, will always do things others wouldn't. You know? Yeah, I suppose it's the people who would never do it, getting them to do it. Mm. I think it's been said before thing. that, you know, um, I think it's something like uh, the, the army relies on the, on the very small number of psychopaths that actually are in the army to do all the killing because most people don't want to kill anyone. And were, I mean, there was a lot of stories about American GIs during the um, uh, Vietnam War aiming high, aiming not to hit people, you know, because they just couldn't bear the thought of the fact that they'd be responsible for taking someone's life, even, even if it's the enemy. So this is his big breakout book, mm. Big in America, Successful. This will hopefully be the one that sets him up. And he wrote it as a short story. He had the idea years ago, and he thought, this is too good. I'm not going to kind of waste it on a short story. I'm not saying short stories are a waste, of course. But he held on to it. He sat on it and sat on it and sat on it, thinking, someday this... And I hope to God no one thinks of it first. Yeah, oh, no I one know, else does I it know. first. That's a horrible thing I know. So this, this treasure, I'll, I'll be able to realise it someday. And he has. I suppose that gives you hope that you have an idea and you just don't know what to do mm. with it or you're not quite right. But someday this this idea that you've had this morning, a few years down the line, maybe maybe that'll be it. And he and he didn't just leave it. I mean he worked on it, he, he wrote a short story. Yeah, yeah. And then but then he had to later a few years later change it into this book. But the idea of having, I don't know, the discipline to not release it as a short I, story. I I don't know whether I could have done it because I'm always worried that if I come up with a really good idea that someone else is going to come up with it too. Because ideas do tend to spring up at a time because they're usually the product of, of the sort of times you're living in. Um, I mean, a great example of this, I wrote, a, I wrote a novel a few years ago, never got it published, which was, it was when social media first started coming along and we had things like Friends Reunited, which was one of the first big social media platforms. And I just had this idea and I thought, oh, it's a nice, simple idea, that a group of friends come back together, uh, haven't seen each other for 20 years, 25 years, and they've got a bit of a secret in the fact that they were inadvertently, accidentally respond, responsible for one of their fellow pupils' death, and they got away with it. No one ever figured out they were responsible. And they came back together after sort of 25 years, and suddenly a profile appears 
on the social media page of their dead friend. Oh. And then someone starts taking their lives apart. And I thought, this is a great idea, this is a great idea. So I sat down and I wrote the whole novel. And the day, I, and this is not a word of light, the day I put it into an envelope and thought, which publisher should I send it to? I switched on the TV one morning, and that morning Ben Elton was on TV talking about his new novel, which was shortly to come out, which was called Past Mortem, with almost exactly the same plot. And that's it, that whole novel's gone. I can never use any part of that 90,000-word novel because it's, well, like, I might be able to re-cannibalise because you're always cannibalising as an author. You, you know, if you can't use it here, you'll use that, that bit somewhere else. But, you know, I, it was so frustrating to have spent all that time and put all that energy and love and passion into this book just to realise you've been put to the post by someone famous who'd had exactly the same idea. Because well, ideas what, what, what are you, a product of the time. I, I know people who sometimes tell me ideas and I think, well, you could you could go and do that. Yeah. And they say, oh, no, you do it. Or they don't do something. And then later on they say, oh, look, somebody's done that. How did they know? How did they steal I know, it? I know. You know, that was my idea. You think, well... You didn't do it. Although, in your case, you did do it. It's, it's very rare an idea will come completely out of left field from nowhere and just springs fully formed into your head. It's invariably um, a coming together of lots of different things you've seen, heard, influences, that sort of thing, and it suddenly coalesces into one great idea. And the fact that he could... Just, I mean, this is a fantastic idea, but the idea that he could just sit on it for all that time... Well, with, with, with you, then, oh. so you had it in the envelope, where am I going to send it? And then bad news about Ben Elton. Yeah. So how did you? We're talking about resilience. You know, how did you? You immediately knew oh, there, there was it. there was a, a small amount of Anglo-Saxon cuss words. Um, <laughs> there was a throwing the envelope on the floor. There was the. <laughs> um, but then there was the realism, the, the realization. Well, the other thing is, you go through that thing about. Oh, well, I suppose I better buy it to see what it's like. But I expect mine's better. <laughs> you go through that. There's a kind of arrogance, you know, mm -hmm. to try and puff yourself up and persuade yourself that, you know... Well, and then his was acceptably good. It wasn't bad. It yeah. wasn't bad at all. I did I did buy it and I did read it and it was actually pretty good. Um, and you thought, no. Nah. Well, the thing is... That but then you see, how do you start? Because then you think, oh, well, I'll do something else. But it's a, it takes a lot of energy, time, commitment. And is, to think, yeah. well, you might think... What if that could happen again? What's the point? All, all, all Any that authors stuff. listening to this will know that resilience is, is one of the main skills of any writer. To, to put up with all those rejection letters, to, to sit down in front of a blank sheet of paper or these days in front of a blank computer screen and just put one word after another until you've got your first draft done. 90% of being an author is resilience, I think. And, uh, and you know, having a thick skin. I mean, we talked about reviews and I said, I don't read them. You know, one thing you very quickly learn is, is just don't read reviews because that can break down your resilience as well. Do you know, one of the lessons from these books, I suppose any, if it could be about murder or kidnapping or whatever, but especially kidnapping, it's good to have a range of friends, not all the same. So you could be a good person, um, nine to five, whatever, but it's really handy to have a friend who's maybe not quite so buttoned down because that's who you turn to <laughs> when you don't know how on earth could I get a gun or find hench people or whatever and then you turn to your mate or I'm not saying his name and then this world <laughs> can open out to you and then you might not want to go down it and I, I know in the past occasionally people have offered to lead me down that road for mm -hmm. one thing and another when I was I suppose feeling completely justified crossness about things that had happened to people that I love and you're thinking I could go down that road but where would it lead? What would the consequences be? 
appalling, perhaps. Well, again, good yeah. people, seeing ordinary people, people that we can identify with as being like us, going bad because of circumstances, is a great narrative device, and, it, and it's very... You know, we, we, we want to... I mean, that's what the whole Breaking Bad was based on, wasn't it? Breaking Bad was us watching Walter go from being, you know, a nice geog... What was he? A geography, geography teacher, was he? Or, no, he was a chemistry teacher, wasn't chemistry he? Of course teacher. he was a chemistry yeah. teacher. You know, going from a, an everyday married with a, you know... A and then you see how long can you stretch it. So you start basically a good guy and we basically like him. And then it stretches and stretches. At what point... Do you think, oh, no, he's not a good guy, we no longer like him, rather than, he's a good guy, but he's but kind of going But then he'll do something wrong. and you're back on his side again. It's very mm. compelling because you, you're kind of imagining, I think it's always that, and it's the same with the kidnap stories, it's how would I feel if this happened to me? Mm. And if you can create that kind of emotional link with the reader, that's an incredibly powerful thing. And that's why it's hard to write because you have to feel it. You do. You do have to feel it, yeah. Even if you're writing comedy, you've still got to feel it. We can't talk about kidnapping without mentioning kidnapped. Oh, what's Robert Louis Stevenson? Yeah, yeah, Robert Louis Stevenson. Yeah, yeah. So that was an odd. It was, but that was an age of kidnapping, wasn't it? I mean, the, the press gang was, was basically kidnapping people to go and work at sea, wasn't it? Oh it was, yeah, there were lots there was of a lot songs, of it going on like at the time. Yeah, songs about people being pressed, taken away onto privateers and or fighting mm. in the war, Britain against America. Absolutely, it's an old old theme. We I mean we mentioned fairy tales, but it goes through fairy tales. It goes, it's historical. It's a very strong emotive subject, kidnap, and it's a great subject for a book or books. Last time. We had Angela McMahon. We did, uh, the book publicist. Publicist extraordinaire, mm. and she um, does the New Ireland Festival, co-director of that, uh, with David Torrens. Uh, I think he certainly is a very big part of it, of No Alibi's books. And also she's director of Flow Communications, and she's worked with all sorts of illustrious uh, writers like Anne Cleves, Tony Kent, Denise Miner, MJ Arledge, Mark Dawson. Mm. And... She was making us all feel bad <laughs> about our efforts to get publicity. But more important than all that, she had a question for you, dear listener. Various people have got in touch. Indeedy. And let's have the right answer. What was the question, first well, of all? Well, the question was, what is the name of Rebus's dog? Oh, yeah, this is because she works with Ian Rankin as she well. She does, she does. So John Rebus, his famous detective, who I... Very keen on. Indeed. What was the name of his dog? And the answer is... Dun, da, da. Brillo. You see? Well done. Yeah. Well done to you who got it. Well done. To the and hard who... luck if you didn't. Hard luck if you didn't, but we respect you for not using Google. Are we going to set a brain teaser for this week? I'm, I'm caught in the headlights. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should set a brain teaser for this week. But we're going to tease the audience, keep them in suspense as to what it is, until after we hear a little bit more about Matt Veselovsky. He talks about not giving away the twists, so we're going to keep this one to ourselves until after we've heard a bit more from Matt. Dun, dun, dun. Genuinely, because I don't know the big twist as I'm writing it, um, and I don't think about this has to have a twist. I, I write on the seat of my pants. I, write, I get an idea about the crime, and then I'll just write. And, and things start to evolve as I'm writing them. And so, for example, the first novel, when I got to episode five, I still didn't know who had done it or why, and it just has to come. So I think I quite like to try and keep that energy of me not knowing throughout the book. Um, and also, I think it's good to build up to these things 
And that's really important when you're reading. It's really important when you're listening to a podcast as well, sort of getting to that last episode and, and allowing it to hit. And I want to, I want to do that to readers. I want to keep that, the energy of it. Because writing in a podcast form is such a different energy, I want to maintain that energy throughout. Are you telling me that the secret that one of the female characters keeps until the end of the book, you didn't have that in mind all along? It was there in my mind, and it was optional. Am I going to do it? Am I not? I didn't know whether it would work, and I had to write it first and see if it dropped right. Because um, if it didn't, it would have been awful and cheesy. I mean, people might say that anyway, which is fine. Um, but it was very optional. I, I didn't have to do it, and it, I had to write the rest of it round that to see if that would fall. So, okay. yes. It's, it's awkward talking about this, because, of course, I know what it is, and it did work. It, <laughs> it was very good. It wasn't cheesy. Um, how do you write, then? Where do you write? When do you write? What, what sort of surroundings are you in? Um, I work part-time and I have a child as well, so it's quite difficult to get... What uh, Part-time as what? Oh, I'm a one-to-one English tutor f- uh, for children in the care system. So I travel around Newcastle-upon-Tyne, various different schools, working with one pupil at a time, doing a bit of GCSE English, so it doesn't take a great deal of my time. So writing, I have to really make time for it. Um, And I tend to go, there's a library in Newcastle, a really old library called the Literary and Philosophical Society, and it's packed with ancient books, and it's got this wonderful smell to it, and that's, I can sit in there and I can write 2,000 words in an hour. It's it's that inspirational, and I can put my headphones in. um, And I tend to write quite quickly, so I'll get through a first draft in a few months. I have to keep up energy the whole time. And what is it, I've been into that building, you're right, it's very beautiful, various artefacts. Gertrude... Bell's hat, I think, is in, in the library. Yes. And uh, what do people think of you doing it? Are you a curiosity uh, or you just slip in unnoticed? <laughs> um, no, I, there's quite a lot of people. There's a lot of students go in and do work in there. And there's a lot of people who go in. There's a wonderful group of um, older people who come in and just sit around and have a natter and read the periodicals. It, there's a lovely atmosphere in there. And there's also a silent reading room where you can't, um, which I don't go in because I, I don't think I can stay silent. I've got, I move quite a, around quite a lot and I listen to music. Um, a friend of mine who's a very quite a famous musician, he writes all his lyrics in there and he sits in the silent room all day putting lyrics together. Do you have a support network of people or of readers, that sort of thing? I would have to say all the other authors in Arendo, and we're quite closely bonded, all of us authors, and they've be- many of them who I've admired are now friends. And yeah, we, we tend to, we all, as writers, I think we have those, the same insecurities and we have the same insularness, like we all know we need our own time. And whenever you meet other authors, you get, you get a lot of similarities. We all want to hide away and we all find it a bit odd being on show. And that's kind of nice. Um, yeah, I've got some lovely dedicated readers as well. I mean, I still find it odd that anyone uh, cares that much about my writing, but the people do. And you can't ever um, not be grateful for that. And uh, it's absolutely wonderful. What mistakes have you made along the way? Not in your life, but there may be <laughs> one or two there, but in your writing that can dead ends or wrong things in what have you learned from it? Yeah, um, many, <laughs> many, many, many. I mean, I've, like most writers, I've written some really poor, poor novels before and anything got picked up. With the Six Stories series, um, because the first one was supposed to be the only one, 
there are a few things now that I have to work around because I've written myself into a corner. For example, the, the life of the, the host was never supposed to be part of the story and, and his life has now ta taken on a character of its own and that's really difficult and now I have to choose whether to include him in the story or not and that is quite difficult and I think I wish he'd just been a vessel but at the same time that's what writing is and if, if you write like me and you don't really plan these things happen almost organically so and, and a challenge is good I like a challenge What advice would you give to aspiring writers? Never stop and never um, compromise what you're doing right for you and keep writing and keep learning. Treat writing as learning. You're always learning. I'm still learning. I'm learning all the time. Read a lot, write a lot, and keep going. Don't ever feel that rejection should stop you and don't feel that someone's opinion means that you aren't good enough. Keep going. Yeah, a couple of interesting things there, wasn't there? I mean, firstly, he talks about resilience there. Of course, he never does. giving up, which is very, very important. Um, the other thing I like is he talked about writing by the seat of his pants because that's very much my way of doing it. You're I mean, a pantser, yeah. Yeah, people talk about pantsers and plotters, people who plot it all out and then start writing, or the people who just pants it, they just go for it. <laughs> just this week, I was listening to an old Desert Island Discs because the BBC's got this fantastic archive on BBC Sounds now. And um, it was Tom Sharp, one of my favourite authors, and I was listening to him, and he was saying he was very much a seat-of-his-pants writer. And when he wrote his first book, which was Writer's Assembly, uh, he wrote it in three weeks. Now, this is pre-computers, this is typewriter. See, that would be even more impressive than Frederick Forsyth, who took a month, except... Yeah, pretty, pretty full side. That, that was it, though. He was done. He, he doesn't he wrote rewrite, it, does and he? that was it. I know, and that was was what was published. Apparently. Yeah, Tom Sharp. He, he took him three three weeks to write the actual book, and then he spent a, a few months actually honing it and bashing it into oh, shape. No. Uh, but there was a lovely bit, a lovely little anecdote during the Desert Island Discs where they were saying about, uh, "Do you have more than one typewriter?" Says Roy Plumley, and he says. Uh, Actually, I have 17. He says, I've got 17 all around the house, so whenever I suddenly get struck by an idea and sit down, there's a typewriter waiting for me, which I thought was a lovely idea, but he must have very disjointed manuscripts. That's all I can See, that say. would be a great question. How many typewriters did, did Tom, Tom Sharp, Sharp have in his yeah. house? But our brain teaser will be something a bit more relevant to our kidnapping theme. Oh, go on. So Warren Zevon, oh, yeah. Werewolves of London, Warren Zevon, oh. he had a song about a famous kidnap victim. Who was it? Oh, nice. That's, that's the brain teaser. I think I know. Warren Zevon, song about a famous kidnap victim. You'll be able to find it out, but you might know. The other thing that um, Matt was talking about, he mentioned where he sometimes writes, and they've got Gertrude Bell's hat there in the library in uh, Newcastle. And... I was thinking, ah, I, I once did a show wearing Spike Milligan's hat, his pith helmet. That's quite cool. Yeah, I know. And it, inside the the, hat, the the band, inside the crown of the hat, it was, you know, probably of Spike Milligan, something like that. And I, I, I um, borrowed it from the BBC prop store over at Television Centre when we used to work there. And it felt really cool. Yeah, and, I can imagine. You know, probably cooler than when I, I used to do a bit of Amdram. And when we were rummaging around underneath the Wickham Swan Theatre in High Wickham, I found a belt that belonged to Robin Nedwell, and I wore that during the show. That's not that impressive, is it, by comparison? And really? during this programme, I also had a shield from Zulu, a skateboard uh, in the form of a skatefish, and a horse's head, which I was wearing uh, when I wasn't wearing the hat, because it didn't really fit with the hat on, which I was telling people was out of 
the godfather. This was the <laughs> horse's head from the bed. But um, you have a hat story. Not so much you wearing someone else's hat, but someone else wore your hat. Ah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, you're talking about Freddie Mercury. Mm. Yeah, you see, I this did, is the uh, sort of thing that Angela McMahon was talking about last time. You know, interesting, quirky suppose, nuggets yeah, from your backstory. Yeah. Well, the very quick and dirty version is that um, the year after Live Aid, uh, Queen's career had had a bit of a resurgence. And they, did, they did a tour and uh, it ended up with two nights at Wembley Stadium. And um, I was very lucky because I was I was one of the police one of the squads of police officers posted inside the stadium right up next to the stage, and I got to see um, both nights at the gig, and they were supported by Status Quo and In Excess while Michael Hutchins was still alive as well. So it was uh, quite a gig to watch for free. But were you allowed to react? Were you allowed to boogie? A little well, bit? not really. You're meant to be keeping your eye on the crowd, but there was such a good-natured crowd there was no trouble. So I got to see both gigs. And then on the second and final night, suddenly a roadie came running down off the stage and said uh, to the police officer next to me, could Freddie borrow your helmet? And this crusty old policeman next to me goes, Freddie who? So I said, yeah, you can borrow mine. And uh, he went running back on stage and then came running straight back down again. A short while later saying, way too big, way too big, because I have got quite a large head. Um, so Freddie Mercury wore my helmet, my oh. police helmet, which I still own. I still have the helmet. Tell us about the football as well. This is kind of this is completely random, listeners. Oh, well, I don't own. I, I don't own. Yeah, I, I. One of the joys of working on a show like QI, because I worked on QI for so ten years or so, is we quite often had some really interesting artifacts and props brought in by people who appeared on the show. Not not the comedians, but you know, we'd have a question and someone would say, "Oh, and we'll bring in such and such," and we had a guy who came in with the only existing football that was used in a kickabout in the trenches um, during the. Christmas Armistice during the, second, during the First World War. So uh, this is a football that was used between British and German lines on the yeah. Western Front in World War One. Indeed, yeah. I mean, the, the, the truth of the story is, of course, there was never a proper football match. It was uh, the, the truce was organised so that they could bring their dead back into their side and give them a decent you know, Christian burial for Christmas. Um, but, you know, the British being the British, they had a football, a couple of leather footballs in the trench, and they had a bit of a kick around with some of the Germans in no man's land, which, let's face it, was covered in God knows what and craters. You couldn't have organised a proper football match if you tried. So what state was the football It was in? actually in very good nick. It was in very good nick. Uh, it was brought in by a guy who's known as Baldrick, funnily enough, because his real name was Tony Robinson. The, <laughs> it was the representative of the regiment that owns it. And, yeah, well, they brought it onto the show, so I actually got the hold the only remaining football that was actually used to one of these kickabouts. Is there a picture of this to be seen? Um, yeah, there is actually. Yeah, we'll, we'll post it up on the Weed Like a Word blog. Is it a blog? Well, there's the website, there's Facebook, there's Twitter. We'll stick it up somewhere there. And yeah, we'll so what's, what's the website? Is it Weed Like a Word dot? www.wed like a word. Oh, wed like a word, no apostrophe, yeah. Dot com. Dot com. Okay, yeah, we'll put the photograph up there. It'll be Tony Robinson, me, football. Excellent. But not that Tony Robinson. Yeah, but that but it is that football. It is that football, yeah. Well, I think we're kind of coming towards the end. We are. We've gone quite off the subject from kidnapping onto World War One football matches. We have, but... That's good, the way we like it. We like it, yeah. Rambling conversations. Rambling but, conversations. Uh, but two good books to recommend to you anyway. First yeah. of all, Adrian McKinty, The Chain. And Matt Veselovsky, Changeling, which is part of a trilogy, Hydra and Six Stories. And Matt's one is... Slightly harder sell because you think, hmm, you know, a bit tricky and complicated, but really recommend it. Wasn't I thought it wasn't my sort of thing. I read it and I was so taken by it and thought it was just fantastic. Creepy, chilling, and ridiculously difficult to put down, says Luca Veste. I'd agree with that. 
And then this blockbuster book, The Chain, such a clever idea and done very well. Do you know if the film rights have been sold? It sounds like yes. it'd be a perfect yeah, film. Yeah, they have been. They, they have, have been. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's finally got a decent whack of money. Fantastic. And uh, he no longer needs to be an Uber driver. Hurrah! So excellent news about Adrian McKinty, who's a good bloke. So, well, thank you very much for listening. And our tease for next time is something very exciting will be happening on the programme. Oh, that's the tease, is it? That's the tease. <laughs> anyway, if you want to get in contact with us, please do. Where Our email is wed like a word. No apostrophe. Wed like a word at gmail.com. We're on Twitter as wed like a word. And we're on Facebook as wed like a word. We're quite easy to find, really. And we'd love to hear from you. We would. We'd like to hear about your book choices, uh, subjects you'd like us to cover. If you'd like to come on the show and talk about a particular subject, we're always interested in chatting to people. Because it's we love having writers on, we like publicists, agents, but we also want to hear from readers. Absolutely. We're very yeah. keen to hear from readers, and we love hearing from you. So thank you very much for listening. I've been Paul Waters. You've always been Paul Waters. And I've been Stephen Colgan. And you've always been lovely. Until the next time, you've been listening to We'd Like a Word. <laughs>